Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast. I have a fantastic show for you today. We're repurposing a conversation that I had on C-SPAN when I was asked to basically do a book review um, with Jason Rezaian, who grew up in my district, but then uh, became a well-known international figure for reasons that uh, you wouldn't really wish on anyone. He was a Washington Post correspondent in Tehran, uh, and he was imprisoned for doing his job as a journalist, spent 544 days in an Iranian prison uh, and became an international cause for the Washington Post and for many of us in Congress and for uh, those who knew him and his family in the, in the North Bay community. So I have a great conversation with Jason on C-SPAN that we're going to uh, repurpose for this podcast, but stay until the end because there's a special uh, addendum where I ask Jason all about his roots in the North Bay uh, and some of the special connections to my district uh, that make our relationship so strong. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone. I am Congressman Jared Huffman, but today I have the privilege of taking off my hat as a congressman uh, and being a bit of an interviewer and a book reviewer with a great author, Jason Rezaian, who has written this story, Prisoner, about his 544-day ordeal uh, in an Iranian prison. My connection with this author is that while he was living through this hell, in uh, Evan Prison in Tehran, I was one of many people on the outside working to try to get him released because I am the congressman for Jason Rezaian and his family in Marin County, California. So welcome, Jason. I can't wait to talk with you about this book. It's exciting to be here, Congressman. Thanks for having me on. Let's start by describing the work you were doing as a journalist in Tehran. Well, in about uh, the late spring of 2009, I made the decision uh, to move to, to Tehran uh, to focus full-time on being a correspondent there. Starting in 2001, I had traveled to Iran many times. By virtue of the fact that my father was originally from Iran, uh, I had an Iranian citizenship, whether I wanted it or not. And I figured uh, after, after completing my studies in creative writing and making a go at it as a freelancer for years, not very successfully, um, because I was pulled away into the family business one too often, um, you know, it, it just made a lot of sense during that financial crisis of 2008, 2009 to, to take a switch uh, of gears in my career and focus on this thing that I was really passionate about. So I started writing from, from Tehran um, about politics, but also about culture and about people, stories of, of the people of this society that we didn't know very well. Mm -hmm. For 30-something years, we'd have a very strained relationship with, uh, with Tehran, with the Islamic Republic, uh, once it was founded in 1979. And um, I felt we could do better as, as news reporters about this country that was so isolated. You wrote, I went to Iran so you didn't have to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I wanted to give you, as an American reader, a window into this society on the other side of the world. And one that, frankly... Uh, as somebody growing up in your congressional district, um, there was a lot of Iranians around me, not just my own family, but a, a growing number of people that arrived from different parts of the world after they had left Iran to, to look for uh, greener pastures abroad. So um, my, my thought and my belief was that not only was this country underrepresented in our news media, we had a real responsibility as Iranian Americans or Americans of Iranian origin to do what we could to give a better uh, representation of it in, in our news media. So set the stage for us, because mm -hmm. one of the things that comes through to me in your book uh, is the incredible roller coaster of events life puts you through yeah. over a short period of years. You had this terrible year where you lost two very close relatives in, in pretty short order. Your college mentor, Christopher Hitchens, died. Um, all these lousy things happened to you, but then you began building this amazing life in Iran. Uh, you have a young wife, 
You describe how at one point you and Yegi, who was reporting for Bloomberg, were kind of the main journalistic voice for the United States of America to get news out of Iran. Um, tell us a little bit about this life you were living right before the ordeal began. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I, mean, I had a, a very tough run. When I, when I moved there in, in 2009, um, I didn't anticipate so many of the things that would happen in our lives. Often, often you can't know what's gonna happen next. Uh, and I think in most lives, there are tumultuous events that, that change the course of, of your life. Um, my father and uh, my brother's five-year-old son died within four weeks of each other. Um, obviously, my, my nephew was a very healthy young boy and uh, was struck by a, you know, a fast-moving virus that killed him overnight. Uh, you can imagine losing a child has reverberations within the family that now, eight years later, we still feel um, very acutely. Uh, but for my father, uh, it broke his heart, and um, and he he died within a matter of weeks. So that was that was a very trying experience, and I had to leave Iran, where I had been established and was in a relationship with uh, the woman who would become my wife. Um, uh, but I came home to to the Bay Area to help kind of close up loose ends of the family uh, for several months. But all the while knowing that I wanted to return to Iran, that I had started something in my career uh, and with this relationship that I wanted to, to see through. Um, so and when you I really got things on track. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was in my mid-30s at this point. Uh, I had enough life experience to know uh, when things were going well for me professionally and when they weren't, and they, I was really on the rise. Uh, and in 2012, um, I was offered the, the Washington Post uh, correspondent job, which I jumped at, as anybody would. It was an opportunity to write for the paper of record of the U.S. Capitol. Who could say no to that? Uh, and, I, and I took it on with, with a lot of gusto. Yegi at the time was the, the Bloomberg correspondent, and I think we made up uh, two-fifths of uh, U.S. coverage in Iran. Uh, so it was, uh, it was very appropriate that, that we would uh, kind of join forces, get married. Our home became uh, the, uh, the, the, the Washington Post and the Bloomberg Tehran bureaus <laughs> simultaneously. And we were building a great life together. We traveled around uh, the region and, and Europe and, and East Asia. Uh, it, was, it was a good place to be situated at that time. And internally within Iran, uh, following the very dark Ahmadinejad years, 2013, there was an election uh, of, of a, a president who was, um, I don't like the, the monikers of hardline and moderate because it's a theocracy and I don't think those terms make sense. But he was uh, Western leaning in the sense that he wanted to open relations with the rest of the world. He wanted a less isolationist policy mm -hmm. for the Islamic Republic. And whether or not you think that the Islamic Republic should exist or not, the notion that they wanted to connect with the outside world and have better relations with the West, with the United States, integrate their economy, because they understood that that's what they needed to do uh, to placate their people, uh, it was a fascinating story. And, and the one, times were changing in Tehran, right? D describe this. I, I told you I, I almost got the feel of it being a Prague Spring in Tehran in the lead up to your arrest, because... People were coming and going and reaching out to you about visits to Iran. Yeah. Anthony Bourdain came to the country and featured you in one of his shows. It seemed like things were really opening up. I think that they, they were to an extent. Um, there was a great desire to woo foreign travelers, foreign investment. Some would say that uh, in wooing them, uh, you know, Iran's plan was to capture uh, some of them. Uh, but if you look at the numbers, it's a very small percentage that end up in situations like I did. Um, but it was a moment of, of some hope for the future, uh, of, of a, a more open future. And that was really what the Iranian people could kind of stake their hopes in. Um, so I think that, that my arrest, uh, while very surprising for, uh, for anybody who was watching Iran at the moment, can be understood in the context of the domestic spat that was going on at the time uh, and, and the goal 
of uh, factions within the Iranian regime that don't want to see uh, the Islamic Republic opening to the world. They were doing whatever they could to, to throw rocks at, at, at this deal-making that was going on between Tehran and Washington and Brussels um, and taking a very high-profile uh, American citizen working for a high-profile American news uh, company seemed to make sense to them. Yeah. So you knew that Iran had a, a fraught history with taking hostages. In some ways, this regime was founded on a hostage taking. Yep. Uh, did you worry? Look, uh, the, the hostage taking in Iran uh, obviously didn't start with me. It hasn't ended with my release. Uh, since I got out, several uh, Americans and nationals of other countries have been arrested before uh, in, in, the, in these past three years. Um, I have to say that knowing the history of journalists working in Iran and dual nationals, I had accepted the possibility that I might get arrested at some point, but I never expected that it would happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think that there was any reason for me to expect that it would happen. I was working within the confines of, of the law uh, and, the, and the parameters set for journalists. And a lot of times people think to themselves or say out loud that, okay, well, you were compromised because you were working within these uh, these rules of the state. Well, you know, that's, that, that's mm -hmm. people's opinions, some people's. But the reality is that news organizations like the Washington Post, the New York Times, Associated Press, Bloomberg, CNN, and a whole host of others uh, would rather have people on the ground reporting than have a big black hole uh, in their coverage, yeah. even if there are parameters set. So I had become well uh, attuned to what those were and how to operate within them. So, but in hindsight, you do look back and, and talk about some red flags that were waving in the weeks leading in up the, to In the days and, and weeks yeah. leading up, I mean, there was certainly uh, a sense that, that Yegi and I were being surveilled. You were getting weird messages. We were getting strange emails, and we were, we were the, um, the targets of an email phishing scam, right. um, you know, wh where you are... Um, uh, sent an email, usually by an account that looks like somebody's account that you, you know, maybe oftentimes a letter or a digit just missing or changed, uh, with a link in there, and you click on the link, and the next thing you know, uh, your, your, your entire contents of your system are, are accessible by the person on the other side. We didn't realize that that happened. The Democratic Party learned a little something about that in 2016. You know a thing or two about this, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's sort of... Uh, um, one of these things, people ask me also, well, didn't you take, uh, you know, kind of stringent uh, cybersecurity precautions? In a country like Iran, where uh, the Internet is so, uh, yeah. so highly controlled, so many of these things, like a VPN, don't actually work there. Right? You must have just assumed a lot of your stuff was uh, viewable by the authorities. Always. Yeah. And uh, I conducted myself in a very transparent way. Okay. So, so let's go to the terrible day that changed everything for you. And, and in reading your detailed description of your arrest and the first day of your imprisonment, I was struck that traumatic events affect people very differently. Some people block them out. Others have really vivid memories of every single detail. You recounted that day in a lot of detail, and it was a terrible day. You were arrested at gunpoint. You had masked men take you and your wife up to your apartment, they ransacked the place, you were blindfolded, driven to one of the most notorious prisons in the world, separated from your wife, and told that you may well die in this place. That's a bad day. It's uh, about as bad as it's gotten for me. Um, but I'll tell you, on that day, I still assumed that uh, this would get worked out quickly, that the, the goal of these people that had taken us, and at that point we were unclear about which faction of, of the security apparatus had come and raided our home, mm -hmm. um, that at some point their goal was to scare us and that this would end. We had heard about other correspondents and friends being harassed um, recently and over the years. People have been sequestered or detained for hours or a few days, and it usually passes. Um, and my assumption was that 
with all of the things that were going on in the world, with the negotiations that were taking place between Tehran and Washington at a level that they hadn't been engaged in in 30 years, that this would blow over. Someone would get involved and talk sense into the captors and say, this is not what we need at this time. I miscalculated there. Yeah. You know, it went on a lot longer than, than anybody could have imagined. And, and at some point, you, you switched from thinking hour by hour, day by day, this is all a mistake, it's going to end immediately, to realizing it's more than that. Was that the, the, one of the low points? Yeah, I mean, solitary confinement itself, and I spent 49 days in solitary. My wife spent 72 days in prison, all of them in solitary, um, is a, such an unnatural and jarring experience that you don't really take the time to think about uh, how long this could happen, how long this could be prolonged, and how it could end. What you're thinking about is how is this particular aspect of it being confined in a tiny place, uh, how long can they do this to me for? Mm -hmm. I know now that uh, international conventions don't allow more than several days of people being confined in solitary, in solitude. Unfortunately, many governments um, around the world, including our own, uh, don't follow these conventions. They don't adhere to them, especially in cases that are deemed national security cases, right? Uh, which is a, a catchphrase that uh, I think, unfortunately, after September 11th, uh, we have used in this country uh, too often to justify the arrests of people who uh, may have been up to nefarious acts, uh, plotting terrorism, but also in some cases we know now mm -hmm. were guilty of nothing more than having the wrong kind of name and coming from the wrong faith. So the rest of the world, Iran included, and we see it in Turkey, and we see it in uh, Pakistan, and Ethiopia, and Egypt, and across the world, people are using these excuses now to hold people in, in solitary for, for long periods of time. Your captors reminded you of Guantanamo frequently. Often. And, you know, at the, at the time, I would ground them in the reality of the present, say to them, I'm guessing that you've never been to Guantanamo, because if you had been, you'd probably still be there. <laughs> and I've never been there either. And we're in Evan prison right now. And you claim to be, you know, uh, practitioners of Islamic justice. And everything that you're doing here uh, is ca runs counter to the rules and regulations of your sacred texts. So, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're going against God's will. Now, whether or not you and I, and we've discussed this before, uh, you know, believe in that uh, higher power or not, uh, my captors believed that they believed in one. So that was a soft spot. Uh, it was an Achilles yeah. heel for them, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the way they treated you. 544 days is a long time to mm. be imprisoned. One of the things that jumps out is it, it seems like uh, there were some lines they, they really carefully did not cross. They yeah. did not physically mistreat or torture you. But the psychological mistreatment was endless. They so lied to you. They threatened you. Uh, they played constant games with you. Talk a little bit about that. I would say that uh, physical mistreatment is a, a, a tough one to quantify. But uh, physical violence and that sort of torture, uh, no. I, I they didn't rough you up. They did not rough me up. Uh, but they did everything they could to break me down mentally, um, starting with telling me that, that I would be executed, have my limbs cut off, uh, beheaded, my wife as well. Oftentimes, uh, you know, they would tell us that we'd never see each other again. We no, had no idea of each other's whereabouts for the first 35 days. Um, and that in itself was torturous, wondering what they might be doing to my wife. And, you know, I, I write about this and I don't go into great detail, but that prison has a history of, of Raping inmates, uh, male and female. Uh, it's pretty well documented. So I, I worried about uh, her survival, her uh, health, her well-being. Um, but I also worried about whether or not we were ever going to get out of this place. And at certain points, they would tell me, you're going to be released tomorrow. Other times, they'd say, you're going to spend the rest of your life here. 
it's a constant manipulation. As time goes on, I was kept in cells the entire time where there were, were artificial uh, you know, lighting 24 hours a day, right? Um, I grew sensitive to, to, to light. Uh, in isolation, you become very, very sensitive to sound. Um, I, I lived for a year and a half with no horizons. There was walls around me all the time. When I finally did get out, I couldn't sit in a car. I get car sick like a six-year-old, wow. you know. Um, so these were the, the effects that that it had on me, uh, that were pretty easy to measure or identify uh, during my time in prison, and also in the months immediately following it. But after, it's the lingering effects, mm -hmm. um, and. I still don't feel three years after my release like the same person that was taken in. I can't, I can't put real words to it, but my chemistry, my brain chemistry, has been fundamentally altered. Um, by those deprivations. Yeah. By the deprivations, by the manipulations, yeah. by the, the living under constant stress. Talk about some of these manipulations specifically, the human interactions that you yeah. were allowed every day, uh, were mainly with one character who features very prominently in the book, yeah. your interrogator. Yeah. Um, he, like some days he would portray himself as your friend, right. others he would be your tormentor, but this guy named Kazem. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Kazem is a very compelling figure in your book. I can't wait to see the casting. If this becomes a movie, it's gonna be difficult to yeah. cast Kazem. But um, he was full of crazy conspiracy theories. Each day he would claim that he knew some damning evidence about you and just tell you you need to just fess up and admit it. My favorite was when he accused you of being part of a, a conspiracy to, uh, to plan a Farsi translation of the Book of Mormon. But there were others. Tell us about Kazem and some of these crazy things. So you have to understand, these are the best and brightest of uh, a very ideologically um, formed youth. He wasn't dumb. Intellectually, he was a bright guy. He spoke pretty good English. Um, and, you know, he was quick. But he had one very uh, damning flaw that I think uh, doesn't work in, in the collection of intelligence is unable to put himself in somebody else's shoes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they formulate people to be uh, ideologically pure, black and white. There's good and there's evil. So while that might be uh, helpful to grow an army of uh, religious sycophants uh, to, to keep your, your regime or your system propped up, it doesn't help in terms of uh, coming up with a narrative. And ultimately, their job was more than anything to uh, take bits and pieces of information about me, some of it public, some of it that they gleaned from my emails and other messages, and come up with a narrative to fit the, uh, uh, to, to, to fit the verdict that was decided before I was ever taken, right? So at once I was, uh, as you said, you know, trying to bring the, the Book of Mormon uh, the religious text, not the not, not, the, not the musical, uh, <laughs> to Iran. Uh, I was trying to foment a feminist revolution. At one point, he asked me if I was Jewish, and you know, I knew exactly what he was trying <laughs> to say with his funny accent. And I said, "What is that? I like a cup of coffee just like anybody else." <laughs> and he said, "No, no, no. You know, a follower of uh, of the prophet Solomon and David." And I said, "Well." You know, I think, aren't we all, if we're people of the book, you know, because this is a common theme in, uh, in Iran and Islamic countries that, that there's one God and Jews, Christians, and, and Muslims share the same God and we're all part of the same uh, lineage. Um, but I make light of this because it's what I could do to survive. Yeah. And as the as the accusations, the ridiculous accusations mounted, and the hole that I was in was seemingly getting deeper and deeper, laughing about it and, and holding on to the prospect that someday 
you and I and me and many other people might yeah. sit around and talk about this as a story. That helped get you through. was the only thing that could get me through. Yeah. I want to read a section of your book about Kazem. Uh, and it really uh, struck me. It was literally your final minutes mm. in Tehran. Uh, he had put you through so many head games and psychological traumas. Uh, but you also kind of got to know this guy, yeah. and it was a strange uh, friendship. Here, here's what you friendship, write. Friendship, no, relationship. Relationship, thank you. <laughs> uh, here's what you write. They, they took me through a side door to a ceremonial entryway. Kazem, Sayamek, and a few others were there. I looked at all of them one last time. I stared at Kazem for a long time until we both smiled. Then I did a crazy thing. I hugged him. Yes, it's even possible to develop an attachment to your tormentors and... No, asshole, that's not Stockholm Syndrome. That's called being human. We can say that on C-SPAN? That's awesome. I probably got bleeped out with that one. <laughs> Look, it was very important for me in telling this story to be honest. Um, you know, I could paint horns on these guys and tell you that um, they were electrocuting me with cattle prods and hanging me by my wrists and, um, you know, put me through mock executions and the like. Um, and that wouldn't have been true, but many people would just uh, accept it as fact. What I wanted to do was give you a human portrait of uh, who and what I experienced in the hopes that in reading this, those people who um, are so hell-bent on a regime change in that country might understand that uh, as terrible as Kazem is, and as terrible as his worldview and his ideology is, I still think that there's a way to change these people. And on the flip side of that, those folks here in Washington and in Europe, and uh, oftentimes in the community of uh, Iranian dual nationals, uh, whether they're American or British, Canadian, or European, who believe that and not just dual nationals, other nationals who believe that any country that is standing up to American imperialism uh, is on the right side of things, that's not true either. These are bad people doing bad things to innocent folks like myself. Mm -hmm. um, so what I'm hoping is that you, you walk away with this book, from this book, uh, having a, a, a more complete understanding of America, of Iran, of the issues of being a journalist, um, of human nature and, and, and the, the world that we live in in 2019 and ultimately just how much I love my wife. Yeah, that comes yeah. through loud and clear. Let's talk a little bit about Yegi. I've yeah. had a chance to get to know you both. I'm not sure I know any two people more in love with each other than you, but your marriage was tested and strained <laughs> by this experience. Yeah. Talk about that. Well, you know, we... Uh, were cut off from each other for those first 35 days, told many things about each other that we both knew not to be true, uh, but you know, oh, such a sustained period of time where people are trying to get you to turn on your spouse, uh, uh, I assume that sometimes it works. Mm -hmm. Didn't work for, for them on us. Um, when she was finally released after 72 nights, she became uh, the advocate on the ground that anybody stuck in, in trouble in that country would want. When we look at other people who are, are in that same prison and their plights are being talked about in the news media and we hear about what their spouses are doing or not doing, uh, she always has an opinion about it because she was so effective in doing what she could to uh, bolster my rights which exist, but you know, if you're not mm -hmm. able to, to access them, you know, you're, you're not gonna access them. But she was able to, to figure these things out because she was relentless, uh, but also to get bits and pieces of information out to the world. And as you know, uh, through working on this uh, for many months uh, and contact with my brother, I also yeah. have a, a, a big brother who was relentless right. and a mom who was fearless enough to, at 72 years old, um, she's from Illinois, uh, jump in a plane and come to Tehran and not be pushed around and yeah. said, my son hasn't done anything. 
I'm not going to leave until you let them go. So I want to get to those heroic efforts from sure. the outside to get you free and, and the role that each of the folks you just mentioned played. But before we go there, um, after Yegi was released, she continues living in Tehran. And for a period of time, you're kind of a high-profile public enemy number one within the country of yeah. Iran. I mean, your uh, trial, yep. uh, such as it was, was sort of like the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah. Uh, in America. And Yegi was your wife on the outside, uh, seeing all that, being subject to uh, all of the, the folks around her that were being fed this propaganda. Talk about that. Look, I think she uh, was so disappointed at how she was treated in those, those months after my release. Friends and relatives disappeared out of fear. Uh, people would say things to her. They recognize her in the street as the spy's wife. There was a, a case going on in the same courtroom uh, as, 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 as my case at the same time uh, about a, um, a man who, during the Ahmadinejad years, had embezzled billions of dollars uh, from, from the Iranian uh, coffers. Uh, and his initials were, were BZ. And on the nightly news, they would refer to him as uh, Suspect BZ, right, when they would talk about his case to protect his... Uh, presumption of innocence? His pres pres protect his <laughs> presumption of innocence and also to protect his family's um, privacy, right? Okay. Everybody knew who this guy was. It was a big case. When they talk about me, you know, moments later, it was Spy Resign, right? So this was, this was what yeah. my, my wife had to deal with and what my mom had to deal with, what my in-laws had to deal with. Uh, but what we understood, what we came to understand was the more vociferous they were in their attacks on me, uh, the reality was these were just responses to what was going on in the rest of the world. All right, let's get to that because sure. uh, as the months go on, at some point you began to learn about this incredible effort spearheaded by your amazing big brother, Ali, yep, uh, and also the Washington Post and your mom, who's the first one that came to my office, my congressional office, and got us involved in part of this effort. And, and of course, your employer, the Washington Post. When did you first learn about it, and what did it mean to you to know that uh, there, were, there was this hashtag out there? I don't know if the cameras can pick this up, but these little lapel pins, Free Jason, and the hashtag, and the global movement of journalists and others on your behalf really got rolling. Initially, I found it hard to believe. Uh, but as time dragged on, I had, uh, after I came out of solitary confinement, in my cell, uh, a television that could access Iranian state channels. It's all it could access. Um, and so that's a very warped view of the world. So I would see all of these reports about me and my guilt and, you know, how terrible I was. Uh, what I wouldn't see what was, was what was going on in the rest of the world in, in support of me. But I did sometimes. Uh, they would show different, um, different reports or they would cut to, to locations live when, when the foreign minister of Iran, Javad Zarif, when John Kerry or President Obama were giving speeches. So I, I caught little snippets, or I would see people I, w I knew. At one point, there was a news report, um, and uh, they were talking about the psychological warfare that, that the Americans were fighting against Iran by using these hostage cases, so-called hostage cases, to, to dampen the, the mood at the nuclear negotiations. And as they're talking about this, they, f they flash some footage on the screen. And my brother is uh, standing there next to a woman in hijab who I had no idea was. Turned out it was sister of uh, Amir Hekmati. Mm -hmm. uh, and alongside the, 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 the talk show host, Montel Williams, yeah. who became a, you know, a big, big, big supporter, advocate, yeah. an advocate, uh, you know, former serviceman who, who supported uh, Amir as well. So... I could see these things. And, you know, once or twice I saw Marty Barron, the, the executive editor of, of The Post, talking about me and, and, and demanding information and, and my release. But behind the scenes, there was so much more going on. Yeah. And I get into a lot of that in the book. 
it reads, I hope, rather seamlessly, but constructing, uh, reconstructing yeah. what various people were doing at the Post, within my family, in the U.S. government, in Congress, uh, Anthony Bourdain, who was also, you know, a really staunch advocate for us from Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. Um, and then other little things. I mean, you know, uh, Edward Snowden at one point tweeted about me. Noam Chomsky and, uh, and a whole slew of, of scholars wrote a letter demanding my release. At one point, one of the Kardashian sisters even tweeted, uh, you know, hashtag free Jason. I think she thought I was Armenian. And you uh, still but, got you know, released. Exactly. It all worked out in the end. But, um, but it took this. You know, I think you, you can probably speak to, to this as well. You've dealt with many different issues over the years. Uh, I think it's fair to say that it's, it's pretty rare that um, so much momentum can yeah. get behind uh, the idea of a single person. It, it was a remarkable uh, team. Uh, working on your behalf, but you were just seeing these little pieces of it from inside the prison. Uh, eventually, as you began to have more regular visits with your wife and mom, they were able to fully brief you on what was going on. But it must but have meant they the didn't world. Know. They didn't know fully what was going on. Well, that's true. And yeah. so, Because they were in Iran. They, it, yeah. it meant so much that people cared. What I wasn't sure about was did my government care? Uh-huh. And, um, and, you know, it took months after my release to get the full story and you know I, I think I've chronicled it pretty well I, I just hope people read it because I think you can learn a lot about you know uh, what a government what this government uh, can do uh, if if an issue becomes important I want to come back to that yeah. but but for now uh, take me back to one of the weirdest days in your book uh, mm. we're leading up to a point where they're trying to get you to do a video confession yep really important uh, to them to get you on tape giving some sort of confession. Yeah. And um, they're always dangling privileges when they're not threatening to dismember and execute you. Uh, And one day they take you shopping. So in preparation of these, what I call uh, completely optional forced confessions, um, they say, look, you know, you've lost a lot of weight. And I had when I was in solitary in those 49 days, I'd lost 40 pounds. Um, and they brought my, my clothes that I had been arrested in to me. I put them on, and even with the belt, I couldn't keep them up. I looked ridiculous. Um, so they said, we need to, to take you out of the prison. And it's going to be a good test, right, to see if, you know, we release you back into society. Does anybody, you know, realize who you are or whatever? I just thought it was the most bizarre thing in the world. They threw me in the back of a car, blindfolded as usual, got me on a highway, took off the blindfold, and took me to a well-known men's clothing shop. And, uh, you know, Iranians have different ideas, or these Iranians have different ideas of, of um, taste in clothing than I do. So they were trying to get me to put on these uh, kind of shiny suits, uh, and that, I said, guys, you know, if you want anybody <laughs> to believe these, these, you know, these confessions, you're going to have to put me in clothes that I would actually wear myself because otherwise I'm just going to look ridiculous. So they let me pick out some clothes. It was so bizarre because it's the same guys that arrested me in my house. You know, the same team of people you know, were there throughout the imprisonment. The couple of times that I was taken to the hospital, the night that I was, every time I was taken to, to, to court, the day that we were released, it was always the same group of guys. And half of them have surgical masks on, right? But on this day, it's your concierge personal shoppers with you. Right. And, you know, a team of eight or nine guys, and, and, you know, people keep asking, you know, what's the occasion, who's this foreign guy, all of this, because I have an accent when I speak Farsi. And they say, oh, he, you know, he just got engaged, and, you know, we're we're getting him some clothing uh, so he can, you know, go and take pictures with his fiance. It was the weirdest day of my life. So you got a tailored suit of clothing, but yeah. it didn't stop there because they then wanted you to buy some sweets and flowers. Yeah, this was this was their attempt at, at sort of um, kind of trying to convince me that that they were doing right by me. Said, you know, you got the 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 lead 
boss of this whole operation says you need to bring some sweets and some flowers for your wife because uh, you've put her through this. You know, I, I wanted to use a word that, that I can't, I definitely can't use on C-SPAN. But, you know, I said, guys, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. I said, hey, look, you don't have a choice. You know, go and get some flowers. I said, all right, well, give me the, those tropical ones over there, the most expensive ones they got. I told them, I don't have any money. You guys have taken everything from me. They said, we'll put it on your bill. You know, we'll, <laughs> we'll add it to your tab. Um, and so, you know, we bought some, some, uh, uh, some pastries as well. At that point, I had a cellmate, and uh, he and I were kind of starving. And I knew that you know bringing those back to to the cell that night would be uh, well received booty, and it was. So uh, we're leading up now to your trial. Yeah. Uh, tell us about this kangaroo court of a trial where you have this uh, harsh, infamous judge that's been assigned to your case. You have strange interactions with him. Uh, in, on the court days. Uh, there's not anything we would think of as actual evidence presented. There aren't any real specific charges, but you have these strange uh, days where you're technically in trial, right. and then long gaps yep. that follow. I want to read from page 196 of your book where you describe what ultimately kind of came to constitute uh, the charges against you or the case against sure. you. You write, uh, but on the surface, this is what the case was all about. Take a guy who is, with some level of empathy toward Iran, describing in plain English the various elements of the Islamic Republic's ethos to an audience that for decades decided it did not want or could not understand it. It was too much for hardline ideologues to comprehend, which means it was impossible for them to accept. If you can't own it, control it, or understand it, it must, you must destroy it. That was the attitude I found myself up against, and that essentially is what they were charging you with, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they publicly in the propaganda that they would produce would say, you know, he was sharing uh, classified information directly with Obama. He had all this information about the nuclear program. Um, he was advising uh, the Iranian administration to accept a bad deal. All of this stuff that, you know, had no grounding in truth whatsoever. But when it came time to come to, to court, they pulled out articles that I had written. And, you know, I w would go meticulous. And look, I'd been in prison for a year at that point. And I'd been interrogated about all of these things relentlessly for, uh, for months. So when I got into the court, I had uh, pretty well-prepared answers for each one of these, these things that I was being accused of. First and foremost, by your own laws and your own reckoning, that's not a crime, right? I didn't break any rule. Second, um, you know, it's ridiculous that you're accusing me of, of this sort of thing because I'm here in your country with complete permission. They had cameras set up at every one of my four court sessions. Uh, I think the intention was to have something that they could show on their propaganda channels. To my knowledge, not a single second of those four uh, trial sessions has ever been uh, released or put on Iranian television. Not in a, in a raw form, not in a manipulated form. Um, because fortunately, my wife uh, had convinced me. You know, they were trying to get me to, to, to concede guilt. They would tell you, and in many countries when you're taken hostage like this, they'll tell you, hey, you just plead guilty. Mm -hmm. You know, we need, we need to show that to the world. And then tomorrow, you get to go home. It doesn't always happen like that. But you and I have both seen instances when it has. Yeah. Uh, but Yegi was adamant about the fact that you haven't done anything wrong. We haven't done anything wrong. And I don't want to be married to the guy for the rest of my life who, you know, said that he was guilty when he wasn't. Right. And, you know, that's, she's a strong-willed woman and, and a smart one at that. Uh, so I'm really glad, in retrospect, that I handled it how I did. Uh, but it was, um, it was scary. I bet it was. Let's let's talk about what might have been the low point. I want to fast forward to um, Christmas time, 2015. This yeah. was a month and a half or so before your release, or a month. Um, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, is done. Yeah. Uh, the agreement is sealed. It seemed that your fate, at least at some point, was rather intertwined with this. But yeah. when the deal was done and you were not released, 
that had to be pretty scary. It was uh, more than scary. I fought the, uh, the thought that I had been forgotten. I had all of this evidence explained to me by my mom and my wife to, to know that people were writing about me and people were talking about me. Uh, but I also knew that in international politics sometimes there are uh, collateral victims. And um, I worried that I would be one of them. Um, what I didn't know was that there were secret negotiations going on and had been for over a year at that point over my fate and mm -hmm. the fate of other Americans being held uh, in Iran. So as the year wound down and the JCPOA was uh, set to be implemented, if you remember, in the days leading up to Christmas, you know, there was a presumption that it would be finalized and implemented in early January, yeah. but there was a lot of back and forth that had to happen. It's actually called Implementation Day. Implementation Day. It wasn't set to be January 16th. It ultimately ended up being January 16th mm -hmm. because there was haggling going on uh, about a variety of issues, including me. Um, I couldn't have known that, and I didn't know that. I think uh, the last 24 hours or so, which I don't want to talk about because I want people to read it because mm -hmm. I think it really is incredible. Yep. Uh, uh, incredibly uh, thrilling to see how all of these big geopolitical shifts that were happening at that moment affected our little life. Let's not spoil the ending, but I find it fascinating that the Swiss uh, played an underappreciated role in all of this. We don't have diplomatic relations with Iran, but the Swiss do, and so they could communicate officially with the regime, and they are also pretty good negotiators. They're great negotiators. They were intermediaries in the negotiations of myself, uh, Amir Hekmati, Saeed Abedini, and a couple of other Americans that were released but didn't travel with us uh, that day. Um, they provided a jet to fly us to safety. Uh, and it was... Swiss hospitality on the Incredible jet. Swiss hospitality uh, in, in every conceivable way. And I, I consider uh, several people from the Swiss Foreign Ministry uh, to be, you know, lifelong friends, almost like family to Yegi and I, because without their intervention and involvement, uh, this might not have been possible. Well, and from the outside, we were working with the Swiss regularly, and they were, in my opinion, heroes uh, yeah, in, in this whole story. But they cut a better deal than even you knew they had cut. Even when you were being released, you were at the airport, were ready to go. I won't spoil all the details, but... Turns out um, they cut a deal that the Iranians, uh, right up to the end, did not want to honor. Key pieces of it. I think, you know, it's important to note that the people that were negotiating this deal over my fate and the fate of the others uh, were not the same people that had possession of me. Yeah. Uh, it's typical uh, rug merchant uh, stuff. Multi-part deal for a lot of different uh pieces of inventory, and a couple of them don't belong to you, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so there was a lot of jostling going on uh, right up until the end. Kazem, who um, we meet early on in the story because he was my interrogator from day one, was there with me at the airport, as you say. Um, he was unaware of the details of this deal, uh, and I think probably very um, purposefully so. Uh, I think that they were being kept in, in the dark uh, by, by their higher-ups about how this was actually to play out. And um, fortunately, the Swiss were committed and played this incredible intermediary role uh, up until the, literally until we got on the plane and flew out of the country. It was a minute-to-minute -minute thing, and thankfully it ended the right way. It's, a, it's not a happy story, but a, a happy ending for that part that came very close to not being so. Well, and I, I, I bristle to think about how my life would be different right now if, uh, if things didn't work out exactly how they had that night. Let's go back to that dark period in December, January, uh, when you're, you're worried that maybe with the nuclear deal done, you might be forgotten. You had a chance to watch Barack Obama deliver the State of the Union address 
uh, in your final days as a prisoner. And he didn't say a word mm. about you or the Iranian prisoners, uh, the other Americans. That must have been rather devastating. It was scary, but at the same time, I came to understand that if something really was in the works, as I had been told, yeah. Uh, that it probably wouldn't get talked about in such a public forum. Um, I didn't know that uh, that my brother uh, was your guest that night at the State of the Union. Um, you took Yegi and I as your guests the following year. Um, and I think the State of the Union is so... F the, the, the view of the State of the Union from the tens of millions of people watching it at home and me in my Iranian prison cell that day uh, is very much focused on the president of the United States and one or two people that happen to be in the room. Uh, what people don't understand is what a representation it is of the country at the moment. Each member of Congress brings a guest uh, that I imagine uh, has something to do with what's going on in their district or an issue that's important to them uh, personally, politically, professionally. And to know in retrospect that my brother was there with you um, changed my view of it. But on that day, uh, I think it was January 11th or 12th, 2016, uh, just before the speech was to be given, Iran captured uh, an American Navy vessel, an armored vessel. It had wandered off course. Wandered and, off course yes. into Iranian waters, mistakenly, yeah. but trespassing. Yeah. By, by our government's own admission, trespassing into Iranian waters. I was watching this unfold on television. Uh, my heart sank because I thought to myself, this is going to... This is going to just blow up any opportunity that I'm going to get out. I might get five new cellmates, right? Yeah, American ones. Right. Uh, and within a matter of hours, it was resolved. So this ended up being a hopeful event for you because that, that told you things were maybe things, on a better track. Things, huh? it, it was a hopeful event, but also one that said to me, why did I just spend the last 540 days in prison? If, if the, the, the U.S. Secretary of State and the Iranian Foreign Minister can avert this potential crisis, which at earlier points in the relationship might have ended up in a military confrontation, an armed U.S. vessel illegally in Iranian waters. I mean, just sound, sound yeah. it out, right? Uh, but they were able to resolve it peacefully and quickly. Uh, it gave me an inclination that, okay, there are things possible here. Mountains can move. And a few short days later, they did. Talk about your attempt to put your life back together, because uh, it's not a Hollywood movie when you're released after this kind of an ordeal. You don't run down the tarmac from the airplane, hug your relatives, and everybody joyously moves on with their life. It's a little more complicated. It's a process. Yeah. I had a chance to, to uh, meet you for the first time at Lange Duel uh, Army Base yeah. in Germany as you were beginning that reentry process, but there were throngs of media from all over the world there with the the bright lights wanting to talk with you. There were doctors from the U.S. government that wanted to assess your physical and mental health. Um, talk about the process. It's an ongoing process that continues now. I'm thankful that I listened to the advice of the psychologists uh, there at the base and, uh, and my family to take a few days to really readjust to uh, the notion of freedom. Um, Freedom is the best gift and privilege anybody could ever hope for. Um, but it takes some getting used to if you've been deprived of it for as long as I was. So having choice and agency uh, back in my life, it didn't feel natural at first. I mean, I had gotten to a point where if I wanted to go to the bathroom for the last year and a half, I had to ask for permission. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what I could say no to. And I was skeptical of everything. Um, I, I think I've, I've retained some of that skepticism. Mm -hmm. um, the response, the public response from people here in the United States and around the world to, to my family and me has helped restore some of the faith that I think I lost in humanity. Uh, but I find it much harder to trust. Um, 
I was someone who was a fairly intrepid traveler for most of my life. I don't want to go places that I, I'm unfamiliar with now. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I want to, I hope to, uh, to challenge that as the years go forward and, and get out and see the world again because it was such an integral part of my life and my life experience. But it's going to be tough. It's going to be very yeah. tough, and it is tough. But um, I have tons to be thankful for, and I, I always try and focus my attention on what I do have rather than what we lost. I was surprised that you named your book Prisoner because you were really a hostage. I like and the term the, hostage yeah. better. Um, I had some long conversations with, uh, with my editor about that. Um, I think that ultimately there had been a lot of books called hostage. Um, but uh, initially, if you go back and you look at the, uh, the releases that we made, uh, press releases that we made when I, when I first started working on the book, it was going to be, be called hostage. But uh, ultimately, the, the powers that be got involved, and, uh, and they decided that this was a more appropriate title. That's what it's like when you write a book and work with publishers yeah, and well, others, Other so, people, yeah. you know, there's a lot of cooks yeah. in the kitchen. Yeah. But uh, you and I both know you were a hostage. Um, let's talk about being an American. Mm. Uh, this experience um, must have changed your sense of identity as an American, and maybe even <clears throat> your feelings towards your own country. You wrote a bit about that in the book. Talk, talk about how you feel uh, about being an American. Look, I consider myself first and foremost a human, and, and uh, right alongside that American. We can be, as Americans, uh, hyphenated in any way we want. And that's not a right or a privilege that's afforded to the people of most countries in the world, including Iran. So I, I take that privilege uh, really seriously, and more so now than, than I did before. But I always, I always appreciated and, and honored the the moniker and the, the freedom that our blue passport allowed us to explore the world with. Um, unfortunately, I think in, in recent years, and I'm not going to just say over the last two years, I, mean, I think this has been going on uh, for a couple of decades now, that moral authority that we were known for uh, throughout much of the 20th century has really come under deep question. I hope that it's not completely eroded, uh, but I'd, I'd like us to get back to that. And I'd mm -hmm. like to compel you and, and your colleagues uh, right around the corner to do more to work together uh, to protect the values that we can all agree on, because there's and a bunch of them. Protecting journalists is a huge part of that because of our traditional uh, commitment to a free press. And I think that, that uh, you know, we, we could talk about my colleague Jamal Khashoggi uh, and his gruesome murder uh, at the hands of the Saudi government. I applaud the efforts by the Congress to, to, to seek justice and demand justice in that case. Conversely, I'm very distraught and uh, beyond uh, disappointed and scared at the administration's uh, non-response to this murder. Um, and I, I think this trend of attacks on journalists uh, have been amplified in the last couple of years, but they've been going on for a long time. We see it more often now in, in democracies than we ever have before. Right around the corner in Annapolis, seven months ago. Uh, Terrible mass shooting. Well, as your, as your congressman, I'm proud of how you've used your platform Thank you. Uh, as an author, uh, as an advocate, uh, to, to fight the fight for those values. I want to ask you one last question because we're out of time. Uh, and I had like two hours of other material. We'll I really do it again. If they want us to come back, I'd be happy to. If you could, if, if Kazem was watching right now, yeah. what would you say to him? He probably is watching, right? I mean, I think that these guys have a hard time letting go. Um, and I, I think I would tell him, it's hard for you to do, but take yourself out of your shoes and put them in mine. Think about all that you did to me and that you've done to many other people in similar and in different circumstances. And know in your core that you're on the wrong side of history. Thanks for a great conversation. 
Everybody watching this show needs to get out there and buy this book because it's fantastic. A fantastic book written by a fantastic person and friend. Thanks, Jason. Thank you very much. Well, we've now reached the special North Bay supplement to the great conversation I had with Jason Rezaian, and I have Jason on the phone to uh, to finish this up. So we're going to ask about some things that are that are unique to my congressional district, because if you read this book, uh, you learn that um, Jason is uh, all about having grown up in Marin and spent a lot of his uh, early years in Petaluma as well. Uh, Jason, talk, talk a little bit about your roots in the beautiful 2nd Congressional District. Well, Congressman, thanks for, for asking. You know, it's, uh, it's the place that I consider home. Um, you know, my, my parents lived in San Rafael uh, in Los Ranchitos, right across 101 from uh, the Civic Center during my childhood. You know, they, they moved there in, in the early 1970s before I was born. And that's the, the part of the world that, um, that I can claim as, as, as my birthplace and my real roots. Uh, and I think it was a really unique upbringing in that my mother, uh, who came from Illinois, and my dad, who came from Iran, uh, decided to, to grow a family there. And not just my big brother and me. Uh, they helped uh, dozens of relatives from Iran relocate. And uh, I think we were some of the early members of that, that Iranian-American community in Marin. How many rugs do you think are in homes throughout Marin and Sonoma County that came from uh, your father's rug shop in Mill Valley? Thousands, <laughs> literally, without a doubt. I think you know, between 1968 and uh, 2008, during those 40 years, uh, my dad sold lots and lots of rugs to, to people in Marin and Sonoma County, and so did I. Uh, and every once in a while, I walk into to a home and uh, recognize a rug or a style of rug, and ask the person where they got it. You know that quirky guy in Tam Junction in Mill Valley. Uh, so, well, that's my dad. And um, you know, our, our rugs are uh, are laid out on floors all over the country, but the highest concentration are right there in District Two. And there was a store in Petaluma for a time. Yeah, right downtown uh, at the corner of uh, Petaluma Boulevard in Kentucky, uh, big shop that, that was an old bank, uh, and my dad uh, took that over in the mid '90s, uh, called it Monarch, uh, and it was it was a great place, uh, another sort of destination for for a lot of uh, people because not only was it a, a dramatic building filled with all sorts of interesting items. Um, it, it was a place where people came together, and it's where I really learned everything that I knew about the rug business. Well, I will, I've told you this before, but the first I heard about your detention and imprisonment in Iran came from the psychotherapy community in the North Bay, because mm. your mom as a therapist um, was active in the Community Institute for Psychotherapy, and so I started hearing from all of these therapists that... Um, knew about what was going on with your family, and that's how I was first alerted to to get to work uh, with many, many others on your behalf. She was on the board of uh, of CIP for many years uh, and practiced there for some years as well. Um, so, you know, we have a, a large and really interconnected community of folks in, in Marin, uh, and I really credit people out there for... Uh, to being the the early uh, flag bearers and raising awareness for us, uh, obviously my brother was doing a lion's share of of, um, of advocating for me. But um, but you know there were so many people who had memories of us and and uh, were really active in the community there. And I'm glad that, that they were able to, to connect with you in your office and yeah. get the ball rolling. Well, the community uh, really did rally uh, to your cause, Jason, and, and nowhere was that more apparent than your alma mater, the Marin Academy community. Um, would you share with folks, uh, if you recall, from, from your first days back in freedom, uh, the, the present that I brought you in Germany? I, I will. So when you came uh, to the hospital in Landstuhl, you presented me with a, a Marin Academy baseball cap that uh, uh, came from from the school, and you told me that uh, uh, that my best buddy Ryan uh, tried to send a burrito with you too. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it would have uh, aged well <laughs> on the flight. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. But we had a good laugh about that. 
uh, many months later. So, um, you know, that community continues to be uh, a huge support in my life. Actually, uh, in March, uh, I'll be doing an event at Marin Academy um, with the faculty and, and, and alumni, parents, and students talking yeah. about the book. Well, it'll be a packed house, just just like it was the last time you were there. So you've got all these deep connections in the, in the North Bay, but the, the one thing I don't quite understand: why are you an Oakland A's fan? <laughs> well, Jared, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but first and foremost, we would go to the Coliseum more often uh, than we could get to Candlestick because uh, I, I think that in the early '80s, before you arrived. Uh, the uh, the drive to the Coliseum was was quicker. Yeah. You know, Pre earthquake uh, in, in eighty nine, uh, there was a, a piece of road that connected uh, uh, the Richmond Bridge to the five eighty and got you there in in record time, almost about half an hour door to door. Whereas to get the candlestick, it would take much longer. Yeah. And obviously, you know, I'm a I'm a California kid. We like the warm weather in Oakland more than we did down down there in the south part of San Francisco. So that was where it started. And, uh, and you know, the A's were a, a wonderful team uh, in the late uh, 80s and early 90s, and it was, uh, it was a, 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 a special time in my life uh, as, a, as a youngster going out to the ballpark. You're still rooting for the A's, right? Always will. Yep. And how about the Warriors? Uh, you not only are a fan, but uh, as you became an international figure, a public figure, um, you had a chance to meet these guys. You know, the, the Warriors have been uh, incredibly kind to Yegi and I since uh, since our release. Um, when I when I was asked what I wanted to do uh, right after I got out, one of the things I said I wanted to do was go to a Warriors game, and very quickly. Within hours of, of making that known, I had an invitation for us to come to a game and sit courtside, and uh, and that was fantastic. But ever since they've they've continued to uh, to invite us to games whenever they come to the East Coast. Uh, when Yegi and I were up at Harvard, we saw them play at the Garden. Whenever they come here to uh, to uh, DC, we go to the Capital One Arena and watch them play. Uh, it's a great part of our our uh, new life. Although uh, West Coast starts are a little bit hard for us. We can usually make it to halftime before falling asleep. Yeah, well, those of us who are Warriors fans, we not only love their basketball, but we want to believe they're super nice guys. It sounds like they might actually be. Every interaction I've had with them, with their, with Coach Steve Kerr and, and everybody in, the, in management has been nothing but positive. Great. Well, that's that's a lot of good stuff for our North Bay and North Coast listeners. Is is there any one uh, last message you would have for them before we uh, let you go? Well, you know, the one thing I would say is, uh, you know, that uh, keep the water clean, keep the skies clean, and keep the billboards off of 101. <laughs> it's a pretty beautiful place. I hope we have you back there living permanently someday. Keeping my fingers crossed for that. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman. 